11. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 13 to 16, but I think it's helpful if we read from verse 1, as 13 to 16 is a summary passage looking back on what has already been said in this great chapter of faith. So let's read Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, when being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I want to take a moment just to read verses 13 to 16 in another translation. I was reading from the English Standard Version, which many of you probably were reading from. But I want to read from the New Living Translation. It's more of a paraphrase, but it really, really get very concisely just articulates 13 to 16 very well. It says this, All these people died still believing that God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. 
Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Keep those verses open and before us. As we look at these, verses 13 to 16 of Hebrews chapter 11, and they kind of mark a pause in the author's great hall of faith that we come to acknowledge in chapter 11. The author has just been commending Abraham, and he does return to the great father of the faith in verse 17. So it's almost a bit of a halftime break as we come to verses 13 to 16, and it's a summary These in-between verses, the author wants to really pause, wants to take stock, and he wants to highlight some significant teaching points and characteristics that he wants everyone to get, specifically the initial readers who received this letter. And he points to the characters that he has already mentioned in the previous verses, hence why I read from verse 1. And he highlights some features of their lives and what they are commended for. And what we'll see this morning is that they will be powerful teachers for us in our day and our context. I want to think of just three simple points that are found in these verses. The first is this, that they, they died still believing. We see that in verse 13. Now many of you may be aware that I do enjoy a bit of road racing from time to time. I do enjoy running. Um, I sometimes put myself through the ordeal of running 10,000 meters, 10 10 kilometers. And I did a race a couple of weeks ago. I really do enjoy those races. A number of years ago, I was doing a race, actually it was over in Banbridge at 10k, and it was one hot summer's evening. And with many of these things, you sort of try to make your, uh, you try to get to the, as close to the starting point uh, as you can. And as I went to, cl- to the beginning of the race, I could see that there was a, a young guy who was standing beside me. He was probably about maybe 16, 17 years old, and he was standing beside me, and he was ready to run this race. But here's the thing you need to know. This guy was not dressed for a 10-kilometer race. He was wearing, I think, jean shorts. And he was also wearing Converse. Now, if anybody knows what they are, they are casual shoes that are not akin for running. And as the race started, this guy bolted. And he sprinted. And I actually lost track of him. I didn't know where he went to. And he was gone. And there was a moment, I'm sure, that he was winning that race. Now, it wasn't too long. Maybe about half a mile into the race, I went past this guy. And he had started to slow down. And I sort of looked at him and I was like, what what a foolish guy this, this boy has been. So I ran, ran a bit further past him. But then all of a sudden, he sprinted past me again. And he went out of my sight again. I was like, what is this guy? I don't know, what is going on? Not long after that, same thing happened. I ran past him, but this time, instead of him running much slower, he was to the side of the road, 
He's bent over, hands on knees, catching his breath. And safe to say, I didn't see him the rest of the race. We want to be people who start, continue, and finish well in our lives. In any task or project that we put our hand to, we want to start that task, we want to start that project, we want to continue strong, but we want to finish well. No one wants to be the person who is known for never completing what they started. I know it's Father's Day, so there might be a bit of grief for the fathers there. There might be a few Ikea boxes that are still at home that haven't been touched. There's a few walls that haven't been painted Give them a bit of grace today, okay? Maybe mention it tomorrow. But we don't want to be those type of people, don't we? We don't want to be the flash in the pans or to think in the sporting terms. You don't want to be that one season wonder. That's the last thing anybody wants to be. We hate it once we're not able to, to finish something we have started. And we can all relate to it, I'm sure. We can think of scenarios in our own life that are similar. And we hate it because, and I'll give this reason, it says a lot about our character, doesn't it? It broadcasts weakness and limitations to the watching world that we can't persevere, we can't hold out to the end. But we want to be people who are consistent, regardless of circumstance or trial, that our values, our beliefs, remain constant and see us through. In the opening words of verse 13, we are told, these all died in faith. Apart from Enoch, the author tells us that these great patriarchs, that is the forefathers, predecessors in the faith, all died in faith, or translation, still believing. They didn't give up. They kept their focus, despite the turmoil of their lives, the unknown, the instability, they had faith. Really, what what is in our English Bibles as in faith or still believing, it could literally be translated according to their faith. And the point is that their faith was the, the rule of their life. It wasn't some sort of bipart feature, but it governed their life. We could say that they lived and they died in faith. And they're commended further as we read on because they haven't even received this great promise of their faith. Not one of them has lived long enough to see the fulfillment of the great promises made by God. Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, they never saw the climax of God's saving plan of redemption. They never saw the glory of the one that was come. Being blunt, they never saw Jesus, though they still had faith. They still had faith. Why? Because they trusted in the one who had made the promise. They knew he was good, knew he could be trusted, that's where they rested. But they still did not receive the promise, though they had caught a glimpse of They had seen something. They had seen the promise, not up close, but from far away. The not seen had become somewhat seen. It had become that figure in the distance. Though far away, it could just be seen when they squinted their eyes. 
And God in his grace give these wonderful characters that, that, that are the foundation of our faith, that have went before us, wonderful little, just little tasters of his grace of what was to come. We'll go through them all. But you think of, of Noah and, and God's great rescue of, of his family. That would just point Noah's heart of the, the ultimate rescue that was to come of all humanity, not just one family or people group. Think of Abraham and how they caught glimpses of God's great provision. Think of the great, the covenant, the, the marriage God made with him and Abraham and his people. The, the birth, miraculous birth of Isaac and how God saved and rescued Isaac when it looked, it was all, hope was gone. Another glimpse of God's provision. They saw something and it was enough to validate and sustain their faith to the very there's just something so wonderful by that little phrase in verse 13, isn't there? These all died in faith. Do you want to be known as the person with the great beginning, the average middle, and the lousy finish? No. No one wants that. It'd be better if nobody heard of us, but we're there at the end than if everyone talked about us because of our start, but we never finish. The author of the the Hebrews is desperate to keep these guys on track. He wants them to persevere, not to to shrink back, but to, to keep going. How did they die in faith? How can we finish well, to use that language, where we bank on the promises of our God. We look to our God. We don't look to the uncertainties or the instabilities, though they are relevant, though they change us and can shake us and have their effect upon us. Ultimately, that we keep our eyes fixed on Him. We place our hope in the firm foundations of His His Word. God had promised an abundant blessing upon Abraham. From Him, all nations were going to be blessed. And He rubber stamps that with the miraculous birth of Isaac, which seemed utterly impossible Abraham and Sarah, they laugh at the idea. And just think about it, put our, shoe, our feet into Isaac's, or Abraham's sandals, if you would. Every time he looked at Isaac, he was laying his eyes on the power and the might of his God. Abraham, when he saw Isaac, when he was reminded of God's goodness, and there was no chance he was going to go back to where he had came from, no return to, to his origins as a pagan man called by God, He's not going back to his old life. He's not going back to his former life. He's not going back to worshipping pagan gods, dead gods, that will bring him no hope, no life, no future, no future blessing. He's going to stick with God. He's going to bank on his word. He dies in faith. But to die in faith requires more. That leads us to our next point in the second half of verse 13. They knew who they were. Read with me the second half of verse 13. 13, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were, here it is, strangers and exiles on the earth. Knowing who you are is essential. Now, I am very much not a fan of romantic comedies. Some of you guys might love a cheeky little rom-com. It's not my go-to movie selection. But I have watched 50 First Dates. Has anybody watched 50 First Dates before? A few people, okay. Patrick, good man. Very, 
very right up there, arm shoot, shoot, shot up. Uh, you're really you're, you're unbelievable. Well, it's it's a film uh, with Adam Sandler playing the, the main character, and Adam Sandler's character falls madly in love with a girl who has suffered an injury which creates an amnesia in her brain. She has short-term memory loss for 24 hours. So every morning she wakes up and she basically forgets most of her life. But Sandler's character falls in love with this girl and his commitment throughout the movie is that that as she wakes up, she watches a a videotape that will then display what has happened in the previous days, weeks, months and years of their life. Adam Sandler's character is committed to her because she needs to know who she is. If she didn't wake up and she didn't have that videotape, she wouldn't have known what had happened in her life for most part of it. And for us, we need to know who we are. And we live in a time in, in, in our Western context and history that we are just utterly obsessed with the notion of figuring out who we are. Everyone's obsessed and need to know who we are, figure out our identity and where that comes from and if we can make it up or create it ourselves. But as followers of the one true God, as Christians, we have been given a greater identity than we could ever imagine. We are in Christ. We are actually more than just followers of Christ. Actually, the idea of following Christ is good and helpful, but it actually doesn't convey the true beauty and wonder. We are literally in Christ. We are part of him. We are in his family. Because why? Because of the goodness of the gospel. Not because of our merits, not because of what we have accomplished or achieved, but because of his grace into our lives. We are called by him, and we are now part of his family. We are in Christ, rooted in him. And also, ultimately, we could argue that, that actually most of our sins, our feelings, are a result of a, a kind of identity amnesia when we have forgotten that we are in Christ. We get distracted. We wander from, from God's care and his people. But as God's people, one vital point we need to be reminded of is that this place, this earth, is not our home. But we are merely strangers Strangers and exiles, as the author tells us. That's one thing Abraham knew. He knew he was a stranger in a strange land. He mentions it a number of times. He tells it just after the death of his, of his dear wife, Sarah. He says, I'm a sojourner. I'm a foreigner among you. Then just in the words that we had read previously in verse 9 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, the author tells us he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents. This idea, this theme of strangers being in a strange land, it's actually littered throughout the entirety of, of the Bibles that are in front of you. All the patriarchs, they, they never had a homeland, a place to, to call home. Actually, the word homeland that's used in verse 14 means it's actually more of means more than a place of of habitation it means a, a fatherland where the nation can find its roots that place where they will finally be able to call home and this is one of the underlying motifs that we find in the old testament for the people of god they're often nomadic people constantly on the move being uprooted time and time again 
And as we finally reach the New Testament, well, it's the same story. that They don't have their own freedom. They're under captivity again by the power of, of Rome. There's a little space given to time of, of freedom and, and permanence throughout our Bibles. I wonder if you've ever noticed that. And the notion follows into the New Testament. And it picks up the language very much in First Peter. Peter will talk about this. Being His writers will be their electites, exiles, their, their sojourners and exiles. Peter's trying to convey them and remind them they're strangers in a strange land. Peter knew this. Our Savior Jesus, he knew this. He acknowledged that even during his time of public ministry would be one where he could not even find a place to rest his head. And it's a powerful teacher and reminder for us today that as Christians, ultimately, we're strangers in a strange land. And it's important that we acknowledge and embrace that reality. If we don't, one of the problems and is that we will live with the wrong expectations of our lives and how we'll be received by others in broader culture. And ultimately, we shouldn't be totally aghast and surprised when we are rejected by culture. Our values are seen as backward at best, evil at worst. We need to embrace this identity, knowing our identity as Sojourners as exiles, as strangers on this world, on this earth, makes a world of difference. I'm sure many of us are excited what lies ahead in the next few weeks and months for us. I'm sure many of us have holidays planned. And as that comes close, one of the most laborious tasks is packing. And right now you're probably nudging someone or looking at someone and you're like, yeah, that's your job, not mine. And I wonder what type of packer you are. I wonder if you get the list out. I wonder if you're, you're washing days ahead. No, you can't wear those clothes, even though you're not going for two weeks' time, because they're, they're, they're going in the suitcase. You can't, you can't use them. You can't use them. You have to wear other things. So you have to wear all these t-shirts and jumpers that you haven't wore in forever. Because you can't wear the nice clothes. They, they have to be saved. And for our holidays, well, when we pack our suitcase, when we just embroil ourselves in that task, what do you bring is everything that you need for your time away, isn't it? Very simple thought, very simple true truth. For our holidays, we, we, we don't pack the sofa, we don't take the curtains down, and if you do that, please don't, that's not wise. You don't pack as if you're going to live at your holiday destination. We pack knowing that we'll be away just for time. Isn't that right? Earth is not our home if you're a believer in Jesus. And the Lord does not want us building our little castles of comfort in the here and now. If we commit to that plan, our hearts have been won by an earthly kingdom. Our time, our effort, money, resources, they'll be spent on it. We will prize what we can get, purchase, accomplish on this earth above the prize that awaits us eternally. We see this displayed positively through the life of Abraham. He knew who he was. He was a stranger in a strange land. He remained in tents, temporary accommodation, obedience to the call of his God. And for us, the challenge is that we would remember that we are strangers and exiles here. We're just passing through. The question I want to ask you this is, I wonder does your life reflect that? Do we prize our comfort and material possessions that, as wonderful as they may be, will ultimately fail? 
To pursue in faith compels us to seek the treasures of heaven, not of this earth. That leads us to our final point of these people and how they're commended is that they longed for the better country. In verse 16, it's the climax of the summary before the author gets back into the life of Abraham. What was evident now becomes obvious to wait well to to die in faith just like our past forefathers is a result of longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They did not long for a physical home, but a spiritual home, a home in heaven. And the great commendation that follows is that the greatest anyone could receive, that God is not ashamed of them. Just think about that for a moment. If you know your Bibles, maybe you know the Old Testament, you're familiar. Just think about those words with that context. God was not ashamed to be called their God. Just think about that. Think of what God's people had put him through. Times of constant sin, rebellion. Think of the time of of the kings that that came to reign over the northern and the southern kingdom. Only eight kings are said to have been worth any good. Most of them constantly rebelled, went against God. Time after time, as we read of the stories in the Bible, it's it's disloyalty, it's failure, it's unfaithfulness. Time and time again. Even these folk, as we, as we look at them, we're not to look at the, the, the hall of faith in, in, in chapter 11 and go, wow, these guys, they had it all sorted. They were amazing. I need to just replicate their lives. If I do what they did, then well, everything's going to be fine. No, no, no. These guys are far from perfect. Think of Noah. Think of Noah towards the team of his, well, how, how his life is summarized towards the end, as we read of in Genesis. He, 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 he becomes a drunk. Think of Abraham, he was a liar. Lied for his own safety, told him told that, that, that Sarah was his sister. Time and time again, failure, disloyalty, and faithfulness. And what's the response of God? Do his rattle in the pram? Turn his back? Cast judgment? No. He means committed. Committed to his people. He's not ashamed of his people. And after time and time again, they, they have, they've Cheated on him. He remains committed. Late um, Tim Keller, who passed away a number of weeks ago, this with one of his most famous quotes, God is in the longest lived, worst marriage in the history of the world. Yet God is not ashamed to be called their God. It makes us think of words that we've quoted Peter. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2. He says, but you, these exiles, these sojourners, as he talks to, speaks to, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's the key. Once you were not a people... But now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that is the exact same for us today. For all the times you have been disloyal, unfaithful, 
your darkest of moments that you just hope and pray no one finds out about. Or maybe that might be very public. Our God is not ashamed to be called your God. His grace is bigger and stronger and more persistent than actually your failure and guilt. And he wants you to hear that. He wants you to know that. That in spite of all that, he's not ashamed of you. And if you're not a Christian, what wonderful news that is. That it's not that you're coming in your own merits and that, that it's all in your hands and your job is just to hold it and juggle it together and hope that, you know, if I keep it together, then God's going to be committed to me. But actually the reality is that even if we try to juggle, the chances will drop, will fail, will mess up. And in those moments, God remains committed. What a relief to us. That liberates us. It's God's grace that commits, is committed to us. It's not our goodness. You know, there, there are many things and places that we all long for in life. Many of them good, many of them sensible. But would our greatest longer be for that, that better country? We will have moments of joy, moments of pain that will awaken our hearts for this longing. I wonder what has that looked like for you? Could have been a moment of joy. Could have been a moment of pain and suffering where you just, you long for home. What an experience in your life has God used to make your heart long for home? I remember being in a context where there was a number of nationalities in one room, all Christians, and someone decided that we would sing together a number of years ago, maybe about 10 years ago. I'll never forget it. Someone decided that we would sing a song that most of us will know, 10,000 Reasons. Bless the Lord song by Matt Redmond. And as we sang, each person sang in their own language. But we sang to the same tune. And as they each sang in their own language, I was just immediately struck that right now, in that very moment, I was getting a glimpse of home. A glimpse of heaven, that place where every tribe, tongue, and nation will be. I'm just getting a little glimpse of what it's to be like. How are you being drawn by God to long for that better country? Do you remember the, the context of this passage? In verse 39 of chapter 10, the writer says this, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's as if the author goes after that. He says, now, I don't want you to shrink back. Now look at these characters with me. Let's, let's go for a tour. I want you to run this race well. Look how they have run. Don't shrink back. Don't look back. Don't look back to where you've came. Don't look back to your previous life. Run, eyes fixed forward. Run this race of faith. Run fixing eyes on the object of your faith. Run looking at Jesus, the founder, perfecter, your champion, your king, the one who goes before you, the one who is with you, the one who is currently preparing a place for you in your eternal home in the better country. He is the one that grants us access. 
And he will welcome us home on that glorious day when we arrive having died in faith. Amen.